Now, if you'd open your Bibles tonight to the book of Matthew again, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. I call it, in my preparation, Life on God's Terms, dash the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In three chapters in the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, God is showing us, if you want to know it, He's showing you how He wants you to live, the acceptable way to live. Many things are dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most difficult to receive for a lot of people, section of Scripture in the Bible, because it challenges you so much. You can't live the way you used to live and read this and not be bothered by anything different. You just can't do it. Because God says this is the way a man is supposed to live. And before we dismiss ourselves from being able to live that way, like in Matthew 5, 48, be you therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, before you draw back and raise your hands and say, that can't be done, we realize that you read the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, that you can't do anything without God's help. We have to cry out to God in the sense crying out, not yelling, but in the sense of expressing our heart's need to God continually for more of what He offers or for our understanding of what He said. Now, we do that because there is in your heart, maybe not as much as there should be, but it's there, a desire to live right. It's not always easy. It never was easy. But there's got to be a desire, a hunger, and a thirst that you've got to have to live right. And he begins his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which you've been reading every week. He begins his Sermon on the Mount by describing the character of people that can do it and will do it. You can't even live it unless you start in verse 3. He said, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, through verse 11. And he begins describing in those blessed are's what he approves of. These are not suggestions, and they are commandments, but they are deep principles that we should live by. It's this way God said, I want you to realize that you can't do anything without me. And you've got to recognize your need for what I have, that without me, you can do nothing. You're like a little baby that's utterly dependent on your mother for life. Well, in a spiritual sense, we are utterly dependent on God for life. We didn't get enough of it that time we went forward in church. It's a constant need in our life. And if you don't meet that need, you'll find yourself drifting along. Remember the phrase, we should give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard in Hebrews 2, lest at any time they slip? Well, the word slip just means they just drift, they pass you by. They go by. You get used to hearing biblical phrases. You quit paying attention to it. You quit examining yourself in light of it. It just goes by. But if you're keen spiritually, you're trying to stay in tune with the Lord, you hear those things again and, and you think, amen. And you never let these things be taken for granted. To be poor in spirit, or we talked about blessed are those who mourn, who are really concerned about not only their own weaknesses and their own ineptness, mistakes or whatever, but also those of other people. That's why some people cry out to God when they see the sinfulness of humanity, especially in a church or in your family or friends. And you really want them to be turned around and you really care. And you go before God because you do care. And then he talks about those that are meek. 
And the meek is the opposite of the way kids are trying to act like today. A meek, quiet, gentle, peaceful soul. The kind of woman that God wants, especially in a marriage in 1 Peter 3. A meek and quiet spirit which in the sight of God is precious. Meek and quiet. Just living peacefully. And then we noticed also last time those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can't stop them from getting after it. They're going to get it. If they had to walk, as they tell me, in some of these jungles where people walk, they hear there's a meeting in the village or something, they'll walk all night to get there just to hear what a man says. I mean, they want it that bad. I remember when I was in India back in the 80s, speaking in the southern coast in a place called Madras. The building was full of preachers. Just preachers were invited. We were actually meeting in a Hindu temple. They knew enough about that to cover up all the monkeys and stuff whatever their gods were, and they cleansed it, they said. And I noticed that some of them were writing on whatever, and I'm not exaggerating, whatever they could find to write on, they would write on it. They valued their pencil or their pen. I mean, it was a treasure because that's how they could write down what they wanted to think about and remember. And as long as you would talk, they would listen. You know me, I'm good for an hour and 12 minutes. 30 seconds. And these folks never gave up. They didn't ask for the bathroom. They didn't fall asleep. They didn't whisper back and forth to each other. They didn't text message. They didn't, I mean, they weren't doing anything like that. They didn't have phones like it then. Those dreadful things. But anyway, they really wanted to hear what was being said. They didn't believe everything they heard because one of the guys with us, a businessman, said a couple things. And I'm thinking, oh, that's not right. That's not right. And I hear a little voice say, quit being such a legalist. That's just not right. Well, they caught that. They challenged him after the meeting. I, I like that. They challenged him on what he said because they had enough of the word in them that they knew that that didn't line up. See, this is what will happen. The more of it you get in you, the more you become word of God minded. And when anybody speaks not according to the word, you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Or you may be learning and you may be new in the Lord and you hear something said, like from me, and you're thinking, I don't know about that. Well, don't believe it because you heard it from me or anybody else. Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. Let God show it to you. But you've got a hunger and thirst for it. And righteousness is God's right ways. Be not deceived, John wrote in 1 John 3, 7. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So righteousness is not only a state you are in when God saves you, but it's a way of life that you choose to live. When your life begins to harmonize with God's ways and you're living in God's right ways, it's called righteousness. There's more to it than that, but that's what he's saying. And then being merciful last week. Like James says, if you are one of those that don't show mercy to other people, I don't care, not my problem. If you're not a merciful man, you won't receive any from God. If you just read it like that, God's people are caring people. We want to do right. We want to get what is right. We want to live what is right. We want to know what is right. We want to see what is right. What can we live the way God wants us to live it if our hearts are not tuned in like that? That's why you have to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith or just a member of a church. Because you can do that. Have you really put your hands on this plow? Find out. Don't drift through life and think religion will get you to heaven. It won't. It won't. 
if being religious all it would take to go to heaven, we could have a 10-minute message tonight and go home because it won't matter. We're religious. But God says you seek and you'll find. You press in and you'll get it. Tonight, in verse 8, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think probably, maybe, that's one of the most significant verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount. Because that's probably the goal of religion itself, any religion. Everybody knows they must die. You agree with that? Every reasonable person I've ever met in Christianity believed they were going to die. It's appointed a man, Hebrews says, it is appointed a man wants to die, and after this is a judgment. So we know that is coming. And woe is anybody who at the end of their life, at the day of their death, will not have the experience of favorably seeing God, of entering into His presence. Sometimes the word see has to do with His presence. It's not a word which just always means verbally, physically, seeing the outline or the shape or the form of God. But it has to do with having a heart that is so in tune with the Lord and walking with the Lord that you will see Him. You will not only begin to behold Him, recognize His work, His workings, and see changes in good things, which will bring forth praise, but you'll also begin to realize that one day you will see Him if you're pure in heart. Now, what does pure in heart mean? Pure means freedom from corruption. Freedom from corruption. The Bible speaks of spots and blemishes. James writes, that pure religion is this, is to visit the widows and the fathers in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. And Jude talks about spots and blemishes and feasts and, and the people who live riotously are corrupted people. Somebody who is pure is somebody who has gotten away from that, drawn away from that. There's a verse in Second Peter. It said, As newborn babes desire they sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. And the word sincere, though it's not the same word as pure, it means basically the same thing. It's freedom from contamination, that word is. The sincere word is a word without man's opinions added to it to make it say something else. It says what it says, and that's what we do. A religious man wants you to change that meaning of it. I can read what that says, but that bothers me. Tell me it doesn't exactly mean that. And they like that. As the Bible says, there are those who distort the word of truth. They alter it and change it to their own destruction, but they do that because people like that. They said to Moses once when God spoke and the mountain shook and the trumpets blaring and the swirling clouds of thunder and the earth was just shaken and the people drew back in fear. And oh my goodness, never seen such a sight in their life. And they said to Moses, you talk, not him. We don't want to hear him. We want to hear you talk. Speak thou to us, not him, for we die if he speaks. There's something about when God speaks. When he speaks to you, it can have a, not only a disturbing influence in your life because you recognize that what he says is the only right way and you're not there. You're not trying. And sometimes the way he speaks is, whoo and that's why a lot of people don't want to hear it like God said. They'd rather hear it the way somebody else explains it away. So it takes the guilt out of it. Let me read for you three or four scriptures. 
Again, I think the whole purpose of religion today is to see God. Not 70 virgins, but God when it's over. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, you know this one. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. Now that sort of speaks at the end. If you want to see God, there's a way you must live. Would you agree with that? If you want to see God, there is a way that you are assigned to live. You will not be made to live that way. You are told to live that way. You've got to have a heart for it. You must want it. And he said, if you do, you'll see God. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4, in describing that scene in heaven where the glory of that moment is put in words as best it could be for us, it says in verse 4, and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. And they shall see his face. That has to have meaning. I mean, the Bible puts that there as something that's a big deal. And the righteous who make it to that day will be there assembled before him and his throne. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. I don't know. But it says that. We'll find out when we get there what that means and how exactly that is to be understood. But that's what he said. Job 19 and verse 26, he said, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That day is coming. In Psalm 17 and verse 15, he says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness or thy holiness. So there is descriptive in the Bible an event in which we finally see him face to face as he is. And it's got to be, like I said, a big deal. We were in Alaska a couple weeks ago. We could see the mountains. You could see the Lord's handiwork. And it's quite a beholding to see the Lord's handiwork, whether in mountains or in a, whatever people look at in nature, and they can see that God must have taken time to make it like this because it's really beautiful. It's better than sidewalks and city buildings. Trust me with that. But what does it mean to be pure in heart? Most of those who define the word, the dictionaries and theologians and scholars who do this kind of work in their life, some of them use the same word over and over. One of those words is sincerity of heart. Sincere, honest, genuineness of life as it pertains to your personal devotion to God. It's easy to say, I love the Lord. You know that? Everybody can say, oh, yeah, they love the Lord over there. Or, yeah, she loves, or, he loves the Lord. That's easy to say. It's defining love that bothers people. Because it's definitions that bring conviction as far as I'm concerned. And it's easy. If I were only going to preach a sermon, I wouldn't spend much time at all defining anything. Because that's where people get bothered. Just highlight it and go on and let you figure out what you think it means. It's when you begin to define things like, what is love? Oh, they love the Lord, do they? Well, let's see if they do. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, I've already proven I don't love you the way you want me to, but I've got something in here for you. Maybe it's an attraction, which is what phileo would mean, and I enjoy your presence. But as far as committed to you, I die for you, no. I denied you three times. I don't love you like that, but I want to. And you know what? Jesus accepted that. Remember that? He said, feed my sheep. 
Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. It's just a sincerity that God wants. You may not be altogether where you're going to be or where you think you should be yet, but you've got to have a sincerity of devotion, a genuineness about you that no play acting. I'm not speaking to perform, not trying to impress anybody. This is what the Lord has done. And this is the great desire of my life. You've got to have that. My desire is not to attend church and, and have noble ideas of God and write a book about it, but it's to have a genuine and a sincere life that is seen in how I'm devoted to God. That God becomes the very center of my life. That my life revolves around Him. And anything that's not in harmony with that is not allowed in my life. That's what we do as Christians, isn't it? Amen. Thank you. Because that's the way it should be. And then we get several verses in the Bible. I want you to look at a couple of them with me tonight that magnify what I'm saying. Turn to Psalms 24 first. This is what the Bible says about being pure in heart. Psalms 24. You know this verse. You've heard it before. You might not have known it was here, but you have heard this. Verse 3. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Now, if we didn't read the next verse, you'd give a lot of answers. Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, everybody that raised their hand and went forward and got baptized in water, they're going forward. Not necessarily. Who shall then? Well, the next verse says, He that has clean hands and a pure heart. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, which is described with the next few words. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully. Let me tell you what I think the Lord says in those two things. Has not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Now, soul is a Hebrew word for me. Adam became a living me, being, soul, person. It can be used other ways also. Soul is that part of you that, and that thinks and your intellect and so forth. But this word soul has not sworn deceitfully or lifted up his soul into vanity. You're a person that, in effect, because you have a will and you've got time and a moment which God will speak to you, you have a chance in this life to offer yourself to God. In fact, when God calls you to come out of darkness into his marvelous light to save you, he is inviting you to come to him and give you to him. Didn't it say we're bought with a price? Didn't it say somewhere in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 6 that we're bought with a price, that we're not our own? So we do belong to him. Well, how do we belong to him? Did he save you one day while you were sleeping and slap you on the side of the head and say, wake up, boy, you're mine now? No. No, he woke you up and told you you were a sinner. Too many church members never repented, but when he wakes you up and shows you your sin, it'll bother you every time. When you get over the being bothered by your sins and you're really in deep trouble, because chances are you're going to go on. But he wakes you up and you see your sinfulness, and it really bothers you. This is how I really am. Other people may not know this, but God knows this. This is how I am. He offers you repentance. That's a gift. He grants repentance. 
And when he grants you repentance, because you can't unless he does, when he grants you repentance, you offer yourself to God, Lord, save me. And you give yourself to him. You belong to him. You offer yourself unto God. Now, vanity is a word which means useless. It means nothing. A vain person is a nothing person. Vanity, uselessness. And when he talks about in Psalm 24 that has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, it means that when he made this decision to give his heart to the Lord, he really meant it. He was sincere in doing that as seen by the way he lives and the choices he or she makes after that. No, we're not perfect and we do occasionally stumble, but when we do stumble, this morning thing kicks in and we oh God. And then you come back and you repent. And you get restored to God if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to... That's still in the Bible, isn't it? But this is the way you live. When you offer yourself to God, you didn't go forward because mom and dad were there and you're 11 years old. I was a Christian church, 12 years old, and went forward. Because I couldn't take communion until my mother would slap my hand or something. The tray came out and I tried to get something. So the only way I could take communion was to go forward. Well, that wasn't any problem. I went up there and went forward, and they did all that, baptized me, and now I got to take communion. It meant nothing to me. It was a vain experience in my life because I had no heart for it. It was just a religious thing. It was part of the routine. And the Bible says a man who is pure in heart doesn't do that. And I play in church. People do it all the time. I've watched it my whole saved life. I've watched it too much. The people who are not really sincere in what they're doing and what they're hearing, they're really not going to do it. They really don't want to hear it. They're going to hear it because they're here, but they're not going to do it. That's not right. That's a vain life. And he said, nor has he sworn deceitfully. It's just meaningless words. You say things you don't mean. You say things that people like to hear, but you don't mean it. You have not put yourself into a place where I'll trust you. We sing the song, He's All I Need. He's all I need. He's all I need. We sing that. And great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. How many can sing that? What we ought to sing is almost persuaded. (laughs) That'd be a better song Sunday morning for a lot of people. Because you see, you can get close to this and turn away from it. But when you do that, it meant that when you started out, you really weren't sincere. Now, the pure in heart is the opposite of that church thing. Somebody that comes to God, recognizes who they are, who he is, what he's doing, and accepts his forgiveness and receives it, and you begin to live a life that only God can lead you to live. This is what he's talking about. And he said, verse 5, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who will? This generation, verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek thy face, O Lord. Now, seeking thy face is a way of seeking thy presence and thy favor. Remember the benediction in number 6? He said, the Lord shall cause his face to shine upon thee. Well, that's his favor. When you recognize that his face in seeing God recognizes those who look to him, look towards him and for him. In fact, these are the only ones that will see Jesus when he comes back. Unto those who look for him shall he return the second time without sin unto salvation. Not everybody's looking for him. We're so busy. We're so busy. We're so distracted and so busy. Don't get me off on that. 
But a lot of people are just busy. They know they shouldn't be so busy. They know they're letting God not have the part of their life that He deserves and should have. They know that, they know that, they know that. But the Bible says, in spite of it or regardless of it, but to those that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And these are the ones He's talking about. Now, this is the generation that will seek the Lord. These are the sincere and honest people. Who are they? With clean hands and a pure heart. Hands of what you do with your life and what you put your hand to. Your hands are clean. They're not corrupted. And a pure heart. An uncorrupted, sincere, genuinely devoted heart to God. Not perfect, but really on that trail. Also, while you're in the psalm, look at Psalms 15. Psalms 15 talks about seeing God and pure in heart, or at least being pure in heart. Verse 1, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? That's relationship talk. Fellowship. Who? Eleven things here. Eleven things. He that walketh right. He that does right. And he that speaks the truth in his heart. Verse 3, he that backbiteth not with his tongue does no evil to his neighbor, doesn't harm anybody. Doesn't take up a reproach against his neighbor, not going to sign petitions and march against somebody. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, contemned here it says, you remember we read Sunday in Proverbs 29 towards the end of it that in the eyes of a just man, the unjust are abominable. And in the eyes of the unjust, the just are abominable. It's like we don't like the sin that we see, and yet the people who sin don't like us because of what we believe. We're living testimony to something that bothers people, I suppose. But verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those that fear the Lord. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. That is, you give your word to do something, you do it. You can be dependent on to do that. Verse 5, He that putteth not out his money to interest or usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That is an amazing promise in light of what people say today about what they can do and they can't do. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. What about that? Never be moved. Be assaulted. Wind's going to blow. All of that's going to happen, but you'll never be moved. There's something about God's favor on people who want to live the life like this, who put their heart and soul in it, put a watch before their mouth. They're meek and kind. Would not do unto others what he wouldn't want others to do unto him. And, and just holds on. And God blesses him. Man, I want that. I really do. Don't you? Psalm 27. Psalms 27 and verse 8 and 9. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Now, verse 7 says, When I cry, the Lord will hear me, and the Lord will answer me. And he said in verse 8, Seek my face, and my heart said unto you, Thy face will I seek. Now, 
seeking the face here which simply means seeking after God. It doesn't mean I want to see your nose and your eyes and all that. That's not what he's saying. But he says, I want to seek you as though I was seeking a person to see them. You know, when I married my wife, I wanted to know what she looked like before I married her. Well, anyway, I did. I really did. I didn't want to just say, okay, Hamilton, you're going to marry Bonnie Olson. Okay, don't let me see her until August 18th. I got it right, August 18th. I missed it five straight years, but anyway, I got it right. I wanted to see her. In fact, when we were out together, you know what you do? Back then, you looked at each other. I like to look at her. You like to look at whatever is beautiful, desirable to you. You like to look at it. You just like to see it. And there's something about to behold in his temple, the psalmist said, the beauty of the Lord. It's different from anything else because he's not everywhere on this earth to be seen. But there is a place. Maybe it's a secret place of the Most High. Maybe it's that coming apart and assembling before him and having him begin to, as Jesus said, reveal himself to you, begin to disclose himself to you. You begin to see at least with your heart who he is. I mean, that's something that's important. Turn to Ephesians 1. It's something that God wants us to know and God wants us to see. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, he talks about the eyes of our understanding. Do you see that? What's that mean? The understanding is a way of talking about your heart, which is what this topic is about, the pure in heart. The heart is used a lot of different ways in Scripture. It has a lot of different attachments to what God does. God searches hearts. God tries hearts. God knows hearts, establishes hearts, strengthens hearts. And he's talking about hearts. He's talking about you as a person, but you're described often as a heart. You know, the heart of a man. God searches the man's heart to see and so forth. Well, where you are there... He's showing you your heart has eyes. That is, it's a perception you see with your heart. You see things you've never seen before, spiritually speaking. You have the experience when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, there he speaks of in verse 17, and you find yourself going, oh, I never saw that before. Well, you're, what you're saying is I never understood what that meant before. We use the word see or saw, and that's what he's doing here. I never saw it like that before. That's interesting. Praise the Lord. But this is what it's about. In 1 John 3, he uses the word see when he says, you know, we know that he's coming, but we don't know what we're going to be like when he gets here. We don't know all the details about it, but we know this, that when he does come, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what we see is what we're going to be like. It's like we don't know yet. We haven't seen him in his glory or what he's going to look like when he returns. You can't define that. But we know this, that when he does come, we'll be with him and we will see him. So it's got to be a big deal. Because the way this is going to happen is for us to be pure in heart. To be pure in heart. So, having said all of that, let me ask you a question. How important is it in your life for you to deal with a pure heart? That is, to examine yourself, see what it says, 
and then challenge yourself to do these things, to be like that. Because, you know, it isn't easy. Your heart is a big deal. What does he say in Proverbs 23, 7? As a man thinketh in his heart, so you are. Or in Luke 6, 46, he said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Or in Romans chapter 6, it talks about obeying from the heart. Faith is a matter of the heart. With the heart, man believes. You know, as a Christian, I've heard these words and phrases all my saved life, and I think we use them a lot. We use them much to substantiate what we're saying. And I sure hope in your all's lives, and you young folks too, I hope this doesn't just run together as another bunch of words you've already heard before. You've got to capture these words and examine yourself in light of it. What happens to me after 40-plus years of being a Christian? What happens to me if at the end I'm not at all pure in heart? I just preached. Is that possible? Can I just preach up here and not really take to heart what's being said and live differently than what I'm saying to you? Of course I could. Paul talks about being a castaway. He said he could preach to others. And yet be a castaway. You could sit in here. Some of you young folks had never been in the other church. You never belonged to anything else your whole entire life. He's been right here. If you're no more than 30 years old, you were born into this family right here. You've never been anywhere else. You don't know anything else. You don't know. But that doesn't mean that because I said that, that doesn't mean that after 30 years of sitting here that you're ready to go. It doesn't mean that at all. You can sit in a church building, because I grew up in one. My daddy was born with the rosary around his neck. When my granny gave birth to my daddy, he had the rosary around his neck and he was doing this. It never, in my lifetime, watching my daddy, it never made him spiritual. I never saw coming from him a devoted life to God. It was a routine. It was a ritual. Just a religious rut that he mastered, learned to do, and... Knew nothing about Jesus. I tried to talk to him once about that. He wasn't interested. Didn't want to hear it. He said his priest knows everything he needs to know. And if he needed to know anything, his priest would tell him. Man, I wanted to jump up and down and holler, but couldn't. But you do need to examine yourself. It's not hard to go astray. You can sit in the finest home in the world right under a grade A pristine theological setting with a prophet preaching and vanish go away so I ask the question again how important is it for you you individually individually you as a person whether you're five years old or whether you're older for you to see and ascertain whether or not you're really pure in heart are you truly His and are you living like you're His? And do you want to? Because you see, this is what makes everything else come together for you. It's when you make this step that God begins to unfold more revelation, which makes joy come to the heart. Praise God, you begin to enjoy that. Turn to Second Chronicles, if you will. Talking about God wants your whole heart. He wants your heart. And like he said in Colossians 3 and verse 22, he wants us to serve him in singleness of heart.
what does singleness of heart mean? Didn't Jesus one time in like in the Sermon on the Mount talk about let your eye be single? What does that mean? Well, if your eye was not single, your eye would be dual for the sake of this little statement here. With my eye single, it means it's directed only one way. I see things one way. Now, when I have both eyes open and I have dual vision, I see the world in its way and I see God in His way and I try to take whatever the best is for me out of the two. I know I'm a Christian, but you know, if I do what God said here, it's going to cost me here. And what would they say? And my, you know, my parents or the community or the people who work with? So maybe I better set you. Know, and so you see things two ways. And you don't really always know what is right. Well, you know what is right. You just don't know whether you want to do it. But a man with a single eye is a man who's made that decision to see what God says alone. If they do not line up with what he says, I'm not going to do it. And I'll show you how that works in just a moment. But... I want you to follow me in Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. This was when the prophet Hananiah was speaking to Asa. Asa didn't do a very good thing here. But he said in chapter 16 and verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Is that a good thing? To have a heart perfect... It'd be like saying a heart that is perfectly his. You see, this whole thing started out whenever this prophet visited, verse 7, this prophet visited Asa, as they often did when the king came back from war. They were often met by prophets. And he said, because you relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord, the king of Syria has escaped out of your hand. And then he reminds him that, you know, a million soldiers were defeated by the Lord because you asked him to earlier in chapter 15. Because you did, he delivered them into your hands. Now, the eyes of the Lord, the prophet said in this context, look, you didn't do something good here. You could have done better than you did. You're going backwards here. Asa, 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 my man, you faced one million soldiers in chapter 15. You were outnumbered and you knew it. And you cried out to God. You said, we have no help. Oh, God. And you know what? He caused your little army to defeat a million soldiers. That's pretty big slaughter. And praise the Lord. Then he said, now, you went up there and helped the king of Syria, which is an adversary. And you could have overcome him and whipped him and he wouldn't have bothered you anymore. But not anymore. Asa, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I don't care if it's Shelbyville or Iraq. The Lord is looking for those whose hearts are perfectly his. So that he can show his strength through that person. That God in you is bigger than everything outside of you. And it begins to show up in your life. You are well. You are doing well. You are healthy. Things do work for you. People think, well, how does he do that? It's the Lord that does it. But it's because your heart's right. He doesn't do it because you're pretty or ugly. He does it because your heart is right. You're living an honest and sincere life. You're not seeking to do anything but serve the Lord. And He does this for you. And He said at the end of verse 9, He said, But herein hast thou done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you have many wars. And Asa said, I'm really sorry. Actually, put him in jail. 
That's the way he ended his life. Verse 12, 39th year of his reign, he was diseased in his feet, yet in his disease he sought not to God but physicians, and he died. That seems to indicate this to me, that if he had sought God, he would have lived. But because his heart had turned away, he no longer felt like he could. That happens a lot, too much. Start out so well, run so well in the beginning, and look so good and so devoted and so seemingly so true. And ten years later, it's just like ho-hum. What happens? Let me tell you something. A pure heart isn't something you got once. you got to work on it. You've got to examine yourself, keep it clean, keep it pure. Because clean hands and a pure heart are the only ones that I can see in our lesson tonight that are going to fellowship and dwell with God in Psalm 24. That's the way it's going to work. In Psalm chapter 11, 111 and verse 1, he talks about your heart. Go to Psalm 119, the big psalm. Psalm 119. Follow me briefly through here. Let me show you something. Psalm 119. Verse 2. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. Isn't that good? Look at verse 10. With my whole heart have I sought Thee. O let me not wander from Thy commandments. With Thy whole heart have I sought Thee. Look at verse 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. That's three times. Verse 58. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me. But I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Verse 145, I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. There's five times in just one psalm in which the phrase my whole heart is used. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, he said, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your might. And with all your soul. It's the whole heart. The whole being. In other words, don't just give me a time on Sunday morning or Wednesday night and think that's good. I want all of you. I want you when you're going to work during the day and you're driving down the road or fixing something or painting something or discussing something. I want my word to be in your heart and your mind. I want you to be a word of God minded person. It's a refresh button when you kind of refresh. Is that what that means? Would to God we had refresh buttons. And every day you hit the, hit the refresh button and go back to that moment where, and start there. Start your day that way. And have a smile on your face. Joy in your heart. Why? Because I'm talking with the Lord, been with the Lord, thinking about the Lord. My heart, in my heart there. Yeah, that's it. Rings a melody. There rings a melody of heaven's harmony. In my heart, there's within my heart. Remember that song? How many songs did we sing that has the heart in it? And the heart describes you. This is how you are. You're described by your heart. Merciful, 
good, joyful heart, so on and so forth. Again, I think the idea of judging yourself, measuring yourself is something that is not only spiritually tedious, but it brings guilt and so forth. People don't like to go home from a meeting feeling guilty about something or being convicted about something. Two words get bigger every day. Two religious words that religion in this new millennium. Two words, comfort and happiness. Make me comfortable. Make me happy. I'll come back. I'll be there. Make me comfortable. Make me happy. Because if I get convicted, I'm not happy. If I really get convicted, I'm not very comfortable in that place. So make me comfortable. Make me happy. What was it they told that prophet in Isaiah 30? Prophesy who? Is that still in the Bible? Prophesy smooth things? Prophesy illusions? Why do you suppose he wanted them to do that? Because he wanted to take the emphasis off of what the Holy One of Israel said. And just make us feel better than we did before we got here. Give us something good to think about. Encourage us to say that we're all right. And nobody's perfect. And, you know, though we mess up all the time, it's not such a big deal after all. Tell us that. There probably is a way in which some of that is true because we do mess up too much. And God is bigger than our mistakes and bigger than our failings. But on the other hand, we should never be at peace with that. I don't want to mess up. You don't want to mess up. Do you? You want to take for granted that this is going to turn out well anyway? you got to do better than that. I think to a lot of preachers today, ministries, I don't know who trained them like this or how they got like this, but for a lot of ministers today, this is a job. It's a career. God chose ministry as my career. It's not a call. It's not something that God led you into, but it's sort of a, a thing where you can feel like you could help a lot of people and do a lot of good, and so it becomes a career. And the bigger the church, the better the benefits. Health benefits, 401 this is and that's, benefits, a nice, comfortable place to live. It loses its edge because you no longer put something into it that's got to be in it. Amen. Amen. That is true. Now I turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. This is what I want to talk about tonight with the introduction out of the way. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. We've all heard this. We've wondered about it. A lot of times it doesn't mean much. Some of us it meant quite a bit because we had to deal with our lives and realize that this hadn't come to pass yet in our life the way it seems like it's supposed to here. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. Does your Bible say that? Now the word holiness here is probably better translated sanctification. But sanctification and holiness are related words. See, to be holy doesn't mean that you're without fault or without flaws. Holy simply means you're attached to God by His choice. Are you with me? When God brought you out of darkness, when He reached out and grabbed you and He chose you, you didn't choose Him. And He brought you to Him. When He brought you to Him and planted you in His courts, you weren't perfect in the sense that your life was without flaws or you couldn't make a mistake. You were mistake-laden. 
Your whole life was scarred with everything. He forgave you all of those things you did, and He brought you to Him and cleaned you up. Now you're free. And now you can walk with Him. You can do what He wants you to do now, and you can walk His way, and you can serve Him. But He says, without being sanctified or set apart, He sets you apart for Him. You're holy and you're His. And you, he's going to work on. He's going to make his home inside of you. You're his tabernacle. He's going to work in you to will and do his good pleasure. He's going to dwell in you. And he's going to do whatever he's going to do in your life in you. Now listen, without holiness, what's your Bible say? No man shall see God. Now I think see means see. When it's over, you won't see him. You'll see something, because I think when you shut your eyes in death, when that moment comes and you're not living anymore, your lungs quit working, your heart quits beating, and you're dead, but you're alive somewhere. I don't know where you'll be. I know where I'll be. I don't know what you'll see. I know what I want to see. But it's something that the Bible gives you to think about. It is appointed unto man wants to die, the same book says, chapter 9. And here he said, follow peace with all men, which is the next beatitude, peacemakers. But here he said, live sanctified, because if you don't, you won't see God. Well, I want to see him, so I better know what that means and live the way he said to live, because that's what he said. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, flee also youthful lust. Flee also youthful lust and follow righteousness, faith, Charity and peace with all them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Because they're the ones that do. We were talking about being pure in heart and dwelling with the Lord and seeing God and having a relationship with God and things being well with you and and having the victory and joy and peace. You know, it comes down to a decision. The decision that you make. I'm willing to do this. Just like faith is a decision, doubt's a decision. Love is a decision. Anger is a decision. Everybody in this room tonight, whoever you are, wherever you're from, you are who you are tonight and where you are in your life tonight by the decisions that you've made in your life. If you're difficult, it's because you chose to be difficult. If you're a young person and you're sassy and moody and rebellious and difficult, that's your choice. Not everybody's like that. Some people don't want to be like that and some people do. But when you're difficult and there's not this faithful heart in you, then you certainly don't have that pure and hard thing working for you. You won't see him. These are not idle words that the Lord speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, First John 3 and verse 2, we don't know what we're going to look like. We don't know what he's going to look like, but we know that when he comes that we shall see him as he is. In fact, if you don't mind, would you turn over there to 1 John? I want to show you just the end of that verse over in 1 John 3. You're almost there. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Does your Bible say that? Now notice the next verse, though. This is the effect of those who are looking for, dwelling with, and relating to God. He says in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him 
purifieth himself even as he is pure. What do you suppose purifies yourself means? Didn't you get cleansed when God saved you? Didn't he wash away all your sins? He's not talking about your sins here. He's talking about your life, those things in your life that bring sin. You know, that sassiness about you, that anger, that frustration, or that quit spirit, I don't want to do this too hard. Whatever it is that you can't serve God with it, and he's dealing with you now to get rid of it, put it on the cross and crucify it, that's what he's dealing with. He said, and every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself. You get rid of that stuff. Purifieth himself even as he is pure. What about that? Even as he is pure. How pure is God? Don't want to say? Well, it's hard to say. That's like being perfect even as God is perfect. We can't deny it's in there. We have to deal with it. Every man that hath this hope, this expectation of seeing God as a promise I'm holding on to. He said I would, and I'm believing him for it. And every man that has this hope in him, in the process of looking for the Lord and living right, he said he purify himself. You begin to cleanse yourself. Old things begin to pass away, and all things become... that don't just happen, but you put your hand to the plow, and it begins happening. Otherwise, you might remain as you ever were. You'd be like those people been in church your whole life and no different now than you were when you first came to the Lord years ago. And what will God use to purify you? His Word. Remember the psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto unto thy Word. By listening to it and receiving it. This is how you purify your way. Remember what Peter wrote? First Peter 1, 22. He says, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Purified yourself, purified you by faith through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is a Spirit that gives revelation. As you receive it and practice it, a work, a cleansing work begins to be done. And one of the wonderful verses in Scripture about this cleansing work is that verse in Malachi. It talks about Jesus. It says that He shall sit as a smelter and a refiner of metals. And He says that He shall purify the sons of Levi. That's the priestly tribe. We are a kingdom of priests. He said, He shall purify the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto him an offering in righteousness, that they may offer themselves to him as having done and lived right. That's how he purifies us. It's through those trials and tribulations. You'll find it in the last of these beatitudes of you being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And things happen to you because you're making right decisions. And you wonder what's happening. Well, you're being tested. God tests hearts. God tries hearts. It's part of the purging, purifying system of God. How can we be pure in heart if God doesn't purify it? And how would you know it was being purified if it just happened instantly? You wouldn't know what you overcame or how to tell others how to overcome it. It's a process. We're going through it now. God help us not to just 
forget it and set it aside, but to live it. Now, I want to come to a close. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 8. He starts this chapter by rebuking these folks for the way they were acting and treating each other and the fighting and so forth. You know, it's just the devil doing all of that. That's why he said in verse 7, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Then notice verse 8 about purity. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's like Psalm 24. And purify your hearts, ye what? Ye double-minded. Now, what's a double-minded man? He's a man with two eyes. Double here is this little word, die. What does die mean? Two. That's good. And minded here is a word for soul. It's dasukos. If that's not the way you pronounce it, play like it is. Or it's the Greek word for soul, which has to do with mind, personality, being. You are a living soul. Some people have a way in life, as I alluded to earlier, a way of looking at life two ways. They see what the Lord says, and they know that's right. But they also want to be reasonable and not, you know, legalistic and, and difficult. So they see what the world says over here, and they know there's a clash between the two, and that if you're going to do one, you're going to suffer at the other one. If you do this one, you're going to suffer here. And so you try to do something that's, you know, I see it this way and I see it that way. Well, the problem with that is that if you have two souls, two minds, you can't make a right decision. Because when you make one, you might be thinking about it. Well, if this doesn't work, I'll do something else. You ever heard that? Well, I'm going to try this. Look in chapter 1. We're not done with chapter 4, but look in chapter 1. Verse 8. A double-minded man is what? Unstable in all of his ways. Does your Bible say that? Now, bear with me. Judge this. Judge this. A man is not pure in heart if he is unstable in all of his ways. Because if he is unstable, that is unsure, and not really for sure about his ways, then he's making decisions he hopes works, and now he's not believing they're going to work. Look at the verse 7 of James chapter 1. Let not that man think what? Who won't receive anything from God? A double-minded man. Look at verse 5. Let's just go backwards. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to preachers liberally and... Oh, excuse me. He giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Why do people have a problem with that? It shall be given. Who told us in our lifetime? Who told my parents? Who told all the classmates in school and things? Yeah, God could, but He probably won't. Who told us that? So that we fold our arms when God said, there's the answer to my need. There's my financial need. There's my physical need. There's my social need. There's my whatever kind of need. This book has solutions to every problem I have. It's laying right there. All I have to do is receive it and believe it. Why then do I read that 
and wonder why it doesn't work. Is it because I don't know what faith is? I don't use faith, or maybe faith is the name of the system, the Baptist faith, the Methodist faith, the Presbyterian. Maybe that's what faith is to some people. But to us, it's how we relate to God. It's the only way we can relate to God. And to relate to God is to relate what God offers. I've never seen Him, and a whole lot of what I believe in Him for I haven't seen happen yet, but I know it will happen. That's my hope. That's my expectation. That it's not over yet. God will indeed do what He said He would do. I ask Him to. I believe He will. What things ever you desire when you pray, believe you have received it. Don't wonder why He doesn't do it. Just believe that He will do it. Because here's the deal. This is the other side of that coin. But verse 6, But let him ask in faith without wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Wavereth or doubt is a, another word which has two words to it. It has die and it has crino. And the word crino means to judge, to discern, to make a distinction. And some people cannot make a distinction between God is altogether right or they should altogether do what the world says. They want to do what's right. They want to have an acceptance by somebody and being wisdom and shrewd and clever and all. To do it God's way is just so narrow. I know I've been there. But here's the deal. Verse 7, let not man think that he shall receive anything from God. Why? He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And God himself says, this is not the kind of person who comes to the hill of the Lord to dwell there because he's not real sure. And we all came to the Lord unsure about a lot of things, but hopefully that's changing. He's changing me, that song. It's starting to work out. Amen. Well, it's time to go. But God is good. Let's pray this tonight as we go. Psalm 51, he says, create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, can he do that? The word create has to do with something only God can do. Create in me a clean heart. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless to our hearts what you had to say, your word, to make us to understand what you say, and then give us the heart and the courage of conviction to do what you said, to live on your terms to let your way become our ways, to no longer complain and grumble about this or that, but to just trust you. We pray that you will quicken us to where faith becomes that weapon that we have in our life, that avenue to heaven. Not only to believe that you are, but that you are a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. Give us that, Lord. Make us to dwell there and learn what that means. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for these people, and I ask you to bless them all tonight with an understanding of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.